the first thing you need to take with you on a journey? A map. So how come we had to wave 11 cantos to get a map of hell? Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is a podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which, you know, we slow walk with Dante the Pilgrim through Dante the Poet's masterwork comedy, and we are up into Inferno, Canto 11, up, can we be up in Inferno? Maybe we're down, down in Inferno, mm, I actually think we're up, but that's a whole different matter, and we gotta wait. Clear through Inferno to know that. Anyway, up in Canto 11 of Inferno. And we're only going to do 12 lines in this podcast. Lines 16 through 27. So without any further ado, let's just do them. Here they are. My son, down inside these rocks, he began to say, are three smaller circles, a concentric gradient, like the ones you've just left. All are stuffed with wretched spirits, and so that the mere sight of them will be enough for you, listen to how and why these are constrained. Injustice is the finish line of every evil that picks up the hatred of heaven. And the end of it all, whether by force or by fraud, is to hurt someone else. But because fraud is an evil that is especially human, it displeases God even more. That's why the fraudulent are situated lower down and more pain assails them. That's our first sketch of hell. Those 12 lines out of Virgil's mouth in Canto 11. Let me just remind you where we are. We have come away from the heretics in the sixth circle. We have found ourselves at the edge of the abyss. We have gotten over Ferenata and Cavalcante somewhat. We have come to a place where the rocks make an embankment and down, and we're standing there and the, the smell down from below us is so bad that we've had to back up and sit under Perhaps a pope's tomb, a heretic pope's tomb. That should be enough to stop anybody, a heretic pope. We've had to stop under a heretic pope's tomb. I know I didn't even touch that last time that a pope could be a heretic. I didn't want to. I want to save all that stuff about the popes for a future episode later when we find the popes upside down in baptismal fonts. So it's all coming later. But we sat under there to get used to the smell and Virgil says, okay, you know, we got to pass the Dante says, we got to pass the time, do something. And Virgil says, okay, I got an idea. And now he's going to map out hell. So here we go. Let's look at these 12 lines because believe it or not, they contain a lot. We're in Canto 11. Victoria Kirkham in a 1992 article in Allegorica wrote an article titled 11 is for Evil and she posited this notion that Canto 11 here is important because 11 in medieval numerology indicates transgression or sin. It's one beyond 10. And since 10 is the number of perfection and 100 the number of divine perfection, since 10 is the number of perfection, 11 is the overreach or the transgression or the attempt to add on to perfection. And so here in Canto 11, 
we get Virgil's map of hell. And it is no wonder that we get a map of hell because this is the full exploration of the nature of sin. And we're just starting it here. But this entire canto will be taken up with Virgil's notion of what sin is and his lesson on how sin operates. Maybe that's a good idea. It's one beyond 10. It's one beyond the number of perfection. And you'll note too, and we're not there yet, but you'll note that Virgil's map of hell that we're about to start exploring will stop on line 111. 11. See, Canto 11 stops on line 111. Kirkham may be onto something here. You know that last Canto, the Heretics, remember? And I made this big deal that's a chiasmus and it's a, you know, this chiasmus structure that's going on in there. What is it? It's Canto 10, Roman numeral X. It is a, the, the number of the Canto is a chiasmus. So, this is something that works around in weird ways in comedy, making you realize that there's so much absurd depth going on all around you. It's just hard to imagine how this thing gets constructed, but okay, there's so much depth going around you. So let's look at what Virgil says. He says, my son, and notice how he addresses Dante, son, filial, father, son. Interesting how their relationship is changing. We want to come back to this in just a minute. My son, down inside these rocks, he began to say, are three smaller circles, smaller bits. Remember, it's getting smaller and smaller as we go down, and yet each circle seems to be more and more crowded and stuffed with people, not just because it's smaller, but because there seems to be more people in each one, as if the population density is getting worse and worse the farther down we go. And he says, this is like what you've just left. So we've been coming down the circles. They've been getting tighter later on. We're going to find out the exact mathematical distances of hell, but they've been getting tighter. And so he says, we got more, three more to go. We've just passed the sixth one of the heretics, three more to go. All, Virgil says, are stuffed with wretched spirits, or perhaps another way to say it is damned spirits, but so that the mere sight of them will be enough for you. So he wants to explain this to Dante. Listen to how and why these are constrained. And I want to stop right here. Virgil now will start to lay out a map of hell. And remember I told you earlier in a, in a past episode of this podcast that I'm kind of irritated with translations of Dante that have maps right up front. Why? Because we don't get a full map of hell until now. We are supposed to be figuring this out and trying to discover the landscape with the pilgrim as we descend. And now we've gotten to a point where Virgil can actually show us what it all looks like. I know it's easiest to start a translation with a map. So you map out hell, you map out purgatory, you map out paradise. But you know what? It may do a little disservice to the poem because the poem is as much about discovery as anything. Come back to that too. So Virgil goes on and he says, Injustice, injuria, is the finish line of every evil. Malizia. What are these words, injuria and malizia, which he seems to have as kind of the basis of understanding of what evil is? Let's start with malizia. Injustice is the finish line of every evil. The last three circles of hell are taken up with malice, a specific form of malice, malizia. In other words, the intent to do harm. The previous cantos, go back to Francesca, go back to the greedy, go back to the angry. The previous cantos have not necessarily been about people 
who necessarily wanted to hurt each other. The angry certainly tear each other apart. But in Francesca's love for Paolo, she didn't necessarily want to damn Paolo with her. She wasn't trying to seduce him into hell and into a state of sin, as we will meet people coming up. Instead, she was caught up in the intemperance of her love, and therefore they are damned to hell. But she didn't intend for them to be harmed in any way. She was trying to express her love. From now on out, everyone will be intent on doing evil. They will be intent on malice, on hurting other people. After all, that's what it says. The end of it all Virgil says, whether by force or by fraud, we'll talk about that in a minute, is to hurt someone else. This is the, this is the problem. What we're now going to encounter are the people who want to inflict hurt. Let's go back to that other word, injuria, injustice. This could also be translated as injury. Injury is the final is the final line of every evil, or injury is the finish line of every malice. The resting place of the abuse of power is the body in pain. Ultimately, the way power and the way humans will try to destroy each other is to hurt the body. It is the final place in which power bad relationships, horrible choices, malice works itself out. And from now on out, the inferno will get increasingly bodily. Why? Because malice ultimately ends up hurting the body. And Virgil says the end of it all, whether by force or by fraud. So there are two ways that malice works out, force and fraud. The end of it all is to hurt someone. By the way, Dante gets this. Force or fraud, two types of injustice. He gets it from Cicero. So he's picking this up from Cicero. He's putting it down here in Virgil's mouth that there are two kinds of malice, force and fraud. And they are both trying to do injury to someone. But Virgil goes on, because fraud is an evil that is especially human, maybe it displeases God even more. Demons do seem to practice fraud. Later, when we get down to Cantos 21 through 23, we're going to discover that Virgil may not quite understand the nature of demons. Oof, those Cantos are rough on Virgil. And Virgil may not understand the power and the fraud of demons who seem bent on fraud themselves. There seems to be a claim here, perhaps, that malice through force is a demonic and human problem, whereas malice by fraud is just a human problem. It seems like it's going to change as we go forward. Remember last time I told you in the last episode, we seem to be in a poem in process. Maybe that's part of it. And yet, if we just step back, we would have to say that fraud, the ability to pull the wool over somebody's eyes, the ability to do them harm by tricking them in some fundamental way, we would say that that is especially human. It is the worst way that humans treat each other. Fraud. By, by lying, by telling each other stories that aren't true, by manipulating each other, by pulling the wool over each other's eyes, sure, there's going to come murder, and sure, there's going to come blasphemy in the canto's head. Of course, there's going to come all kinds of violence, malice by force. And then... 
lower down from even that is the malice of fraud, the wily, oily attempt to somehow pull one over or do harm or injury to other people with a smiling face. That's going to be the nature of the sin we're going to encounter. It's not just enough to stab someone to be fraudulent. Rather, it's to smile and invite them into your home and then stab them. That seems for Dante and Virgil to be the absolute lowest bit of human behavior. It is the most inhuman thing you could possibly do. All right, let's step back from this passage and talk about two other things. One of the things that I want to go back to is my son, that opening bit in which Virgil starts this long speech about the very nature of hell. This is my question. How do you recover the books from your childhood or early maturity? How do you get them back? Remember books that you read as a kid? Do you remember what they were like? Do you remember how you responded to them? How, in fact, once you're an adult, do you find them again? And this is the question of Virgil. This becomes the dominant problem of Virgil in comedy. Virgil is a schoolboy's text. It's something you learn. The Aeneid, something you're sometimes forced through, something that you have to confront if you want to learn Latin, especially in Dante's day. And so now, Dante, as a middle-aged man writing a poem, how do you deal with these books that were at one point either forced on you or maybe you responded really positively to them or something, but now you're middle-aged and your whole outlook has changed? My son, it indicates an acceptance, a conviviality, a togetherness. It indicates a fatherliness, a generationalness, a generationalizing. (laughs) What is that word? Generating somehow, son, father to son. It indicates all of that, but I think really what's at core here, and this is the change in the Virgilian character after we pass the walls of Dis, is how do you rediscover these things, these authors, these books you loved as a kid? We've moved beyond the Virgilian landscape with the walls of Dis. So what do adults do with the texts that moved them early on? Let me give you a personal example. When I was in uh, 10th grade, I spent spring break reading George Eliot's Middlemarch on my bed in my bedroom. That's what I did for spring break. Everybody else was out. Everybody else was a very strange child. And everybody else was out playing baseball and football in the street and all that stuff. I read Middlemarch. I couldn't put it down. It absolutely freaked me out as a 10th grader. It freaked me out when I read it again in college. It continues to do so. I read Middlemarch at all the giant moments of my life when I came out when I met my current husband, Bruce, and fell in love with him, each of those moments, I read Middlemarch. And Middlemarch changed for me. And interestingly, I now have a very combative relationship with Middlemarch. I don't actually think it's a great novel. I think it's a failed novel. And my combative relationship with Middlemarch reflects my stance as a middle-aged man looking back on his youthful engagement with a text. I'm sure many people feel this about Lord of the Rings. I'm sure many people read Tolkien when they were kids and then they came back to him as an adult and they were like, 
what in the world was I thinking? Or maybe they came back to Tolkien as an adult and found a new reason to read Tolkien, not just the sheer adventure of The Lord of the Rings, but something else. Let me give you another example. When I first met Bruce, we were first together. Here I am coming out of this Southern American evangelical background, and Bruce is the prototypical, stereotypical, atheist, liberal New Yorker. Well, we didn't share anything in common, so I thought we needed common ground. So I went back to some books from my childhood, C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles. And we did this thing for about three months in which Bruce, my atheist husband, sat in a bathtub while I sat on the floor next to him and read aloud Lewis's Narnia Chronicles. We got about two and a half books in. And I said to him, I don't know what I was thinking. I hate these books. I don't get it. I don't I don't know what my approach to these books are. I don't know why I'm reading them to you. They meant a great deal to me as a child. They I don't they don't mean anything to me now. And so we gave up. <laughs> I think the third book. We just quit. There are other books, of course, that have stuck with me. Tony Morrison's Beloved. I have a very combative relationship with Charlotte Bronte, with Jane Eyre. I haven't touched William Blake since he almost drove me over the brink of insanity in college. How do you find these texts? And how do you relate to their authors when you come back to them? When you finally reread the Iliad and the Odyssey? When you finally reread the text that meant a great deal to you as a kid? When you finally reread the Bible? How is it that you can find yourself in that text again? And that is the question that all lies on my son and the changing nature of the Virgilian character in comedy. Second point. Virgil is about to lay out a map, a map of mundi, a map of the world. And it's more important than you might think. Remember, we are on the dawn of the age of exploration. In Dante's day, Suddenly, the borders are seeming to increase far beyond the Levant, far beyond the Crusades in the Holy Land, but they're starting to increase down into Africa. And there's movement out in the age of exploration in the 1300s. And Dante is right on the cusp of this. And what is the dominant, <laughs> the dominant idea of the age of exploration? Maps. Do you realize that the first images of the New World, this is long after Dante, but the first images of the Americas of the New World were maps. They didn't send back, they didn't come back with images necessarily of fauna and flora or of the indigenous peoples. No, they came back with images of coastlines, with maps. It was the first time Europeans saw the New World, they saw a map by and large. Yes, of course, for com commerce. Yes, of course, for trade. Yes, of course, for settlements. But also, mapping was a form of seeing, and it relates directly to the age of exploration and the coming Renaissance and the coming neoclassical age of reason. It's all sitting there, the ability to pin it onto a map. And furthermore, and this seems really important, maps in Dante's day are histories of salvation. Let me explain this to you. There's a 1375 atlas, a Catalan atlas from Spain. And the maps in this atlas, if you find it, and I'll tell you where to find it in a minute, that you will see that the maps are situated so that they are read east to west, left to right, which means when you look at many medieval maps, Jerusalem is sitting on the east. 
And let's say London or Paris is sitting on the right-hand side of the map. It's upside down from what you would normally look at a map. Why? Because a map is the history of salvation. Moving from Jerusalem across Europe to Rome and on out across to the ends of Europe. It has a, to use the fancy word, a soteriological function. Or there are many maps that are oriented, especially in Dante's day, with Jerusalem in the center and the top shows Jesus and the heavens above it. And then there's Jerusalem in the center. And let's say London and Norway and Denmark are all sitting at the bottom of the map. Why? Because they're red up down. They're red as the history of salvation with Jerusalem at the center of the world. In other words, mapping was primarily a religious undertaking. If you want to know more about this, look up the Norwegian scholar Thomas Reinesten Berg's book, Theater of the World, The Maps That Made History. This book will lay out in many ways this notion that mapping is a function of theology and that the initial maps attempt to orient the world so that they can be read as the story of salvation from Jerusalem passing across Europe and out, and thus they're upside down. Mapping, in other words, is connected to the history of salvation, and surely that's all sitting underneath what we're about to experience, because Virgil is going to map, not map Mundi, he's going to map a inferno. He's going to map hell, but it's like a map of Mundi. It's like a map of the world. He's going to map out hell for us. And it is the story, the soteriological story, the story of how people get damned and how they don't get saved. In other words, a reverse map of Jerusalem to London, but rather a map of the underworld all sitting here at the dawn of the age of exploration, at the dawn of the age of real map-making, of serious map-making, all attempting to fuse religion to maps, to theology, to geography. That's all happening, and it's all happening in comedy. So come back, because in the next episode, we're going to find out exactly what hell looks like. We're going to get it explained to us, how it works, how it works out, why it works the way it does, what are the bottom three circles that we're coming up on. We only did 12 lines. We didn't do much because I kind of wanted to talk, as I did, a lot about Mapamundis and about how do you encounter your childhood heroes or your literary figures of childhood. I wanted to ha have all that sit here and first introduce you to the concept that injustice or injury is the root of the worst sins. That is, the desire to hurt someone else, whether by force or by fraud, to inflict physical pain, or worse, as we will see, to damn them with you, to pull them down into hell with you. It is the most hellish thing, according to Dante, that humans can do. So subscribe, like the podcast, come back. Oh, so much more. We got to get into Canto 11. We got to get into the Mappa Inferno <laughs> and figure out exactly how hell lies. And we will on the next episode of Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.